Good day, history lovers, and welcome to the latest History Ireland Head School. And this is your Head School Master, Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland magazine. And we would like to acknowledge the support of the Commemorations Unit of the Department of Culture, Heritage and the Gaeltacht. Now, this is our first uh, Head School done as a podcast. We're on the frontiers of technology here. This um, Head School is also in association with Galway Trades Council. Uh, originally, this was meant to be a May Day um, event uh, in the Mechanics Institute in Galway, our favourite uh, venue, uh, if only because they have a lovely little bar at one end of the, of the hall. Oh, what I give for a creamy pint right now? Ooh, that'll, that'll have to wait. Anyway, I digress. Now, because of the, the day that's in it, May Day, we are looking at Soviet strikes and land seizures, class conflict and the Tan War. And we have assembled a stellar panel here. Uh, so representing the City of the Tribes, we have uh, John Cunningham uh, and we have uh, Sarah Ann Buckley, both of NUIG Galway. Uh, we have Mary Muldowney, who's uh, one of Dublin City Council's uh, historians in residence. And finally, uh, Brian Hanley, soon to be of uh, Trinity College Dublin. Uh, you're all very welcome. Um, now, just to get things started, right, to what extent was social radicalism uh, part of the Irish Revolutionary Project? And, and I'm thinking here in particular of, say, the 1916 uh, proclamation. Brian? Uh, I think the aspiration to social change was part of the revolution and played a part in the motivations of a lot of people who took part in those years. But in terms of an actual uh, desire for social change, I think that took very much second place to a desire for sovereignty. And there's the 1916 proclamation and so on. What it's mainly about is the declaration of a republic and a declaration of independence from Britain. It can be read by those who want to as aspiring to social change in terms of the ownership of Ireland, resting with the people of Ireland and so on. But that's suitably vague to appeal to anybody. And I think in general, the motivating factor that united what was a coalition up till the end of the War of Independence, at least, was the desire for sovereignty. Now, within that, you had a whole range of political beliefs and you had a whole spectrum of things going on, sometimes connected to the independence struggle, sometimes quite... Um, uh, independent of it, so to speak, whereby people did try to seize land, people took part in strike action and so on for economic reasons. And this was all tied up then in a general tumult, which can't be separated from that which was going on across the world at the time. Just, just before I get on to the, the, the 1920 uh, era, just to go back to the question of, of um, social radicalism and sovereignty, the point is, though, isn't sovereignty and class intertwined in the Irish situation for the very reason, for example, if you look at the land question, right, the fact that, they, that they, you know, landowners in general were people of a different ethnic origin. You know what I mean? So there is a link there. Can, can maybe, John, do you want to come in on that? Because I think this bears on our later discussion. This, this whole area is riddled with misunderstanding, it seems yes. to me. There is a, a link. It's not a, there isn't a, contradictory, a contradiction between class and sovereignty. There is in some cases, but not always. Yes. I suppose... Um... If we go back to Sam Clark in his writings on the land question in particular, he spoke about uh, for rebellion <laughs> uh, to take place, there needed to be discontent um, and leadership. So, and uh, we have uh, um, the whole Parnell talking about 
using the land question to drive the home rule engine. I'm sure I'm misquoting it. Uh, but you do have those two distinct um, uh, f- factors, I suppose. And certainly the discontent um, um, as um, is uh, uh, generally um, socially radical in the, in the way it's, it's expressed, even if we go back to the 19th um, and uh, century. And I think we can say that um, too in relation to the period of, 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 that we're talking about uh, today, uh, that uh, discontent, social discontent, social radicalism, it, it, it was a driving force, if you like. Uh, Sarah, can I bring in you, you there in relation to the uh, the proclamation? Because that's what, what I say most listeners are familiar with in terms of laying out a, a revolutionary programme. And I suppose you've answered this question several times, the, the reference to children in the proclamation. Could you clear that up with us? Because you've done a lot of work on that. Yeah, I guess um, the question of, you know, cherishing the, the children of the nation equally. I think most scholars would now agree that that was a reference to um, all citizens on the island um, and meant to be a more inclusive reference as opposed to talking about actual children. Um, for me, uh, I guess coming in where Brian was discussing um, the proclamation, which we'll connect later when we discuss the democratic program, the equality between men and women is quite important. And I think that reference is is something that we do see a continuity with, but also is a big issue uh, later on. In regards to how children are actually uh, living at the time and, and social change, I think that in some ways, were the reference have been discussing children themselves, it would have had um, been quite important because, as we know, in 1916, 20% of deaths are under 15 years of age. So uh, it's actually quite a big issue at the time. Yeah, Mary, can, you, can I just bring the, 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 the women's issues being mentioned here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because that was a, a radical position at that time as well. How central is that to the, the revolutionary programme? I think it was extremely central, perhaps written out over many hundreds of decades afterwards, but certainly a lot of the women who were prominent in the 1960s rising had been activated politically through the 1913 lockout. So there was an awareness of women who may have come from the uh, fight for the franchise uh, from that movement that there were social, enormous social problems that needed to be solved. So Sarah-Anne is saying uh, children and women, of course, were living in dire poverty. And a lot of the more uh, well-off middle-class women who became involved in the uh, separatist movement were motivated by the need for social change as well as by the kind of separatist agenda. So. Um, that's very clear then in their continued involvement in the trade unions later. Uh, quite a few of them went on to play roles, not just in the War of Independence, but in later life, uh, if they were still around, that they were involved in trying to bring about the kind of equality that was aspired to, apparently, through the proclamation of the democratic programme, but of course, as we know, wasn't delivered. Brian, you wanted to come in there? Yeah, I suppose just in terms of these documents, uh, I think it's important to remember that the vast majority of rebels on Easter Monday had no input into the proclamation. And the first they heard of it was when it was unveiled by Mm -hmm. Pearson and so on. 
at the GPO. It was written not even by the seven signatories. It was written by three or four of them. And it was never discussed by the IRB or never discussed by the Citizens Army or the volunteers. So it's, you know, obviously somebody, something has to be written by somebody. But this had no, you know, it, it's the memory of the proclamation and what the proclamation is seen to mean because of the rising that makes it so iconic. So it's very significant that they do include women, Irish men and Irish women, and it's significant that they phrase the language the way they do. But that too, I think, can't be separated from, if you compare it to the 1867 Fenian Proclamation, that's a secular document, calls for separation of church and state and so on. This doesn't, this comes from a very different era. God is mentioned several times. Uh, um, you know, Connolly's involved in writing it. He's a Marxist, but there isn't really any Marxism in the proclamation. You can, you can read that into it if you want. But so, you know, when we talk about these documents, the Republic, I think, is the key thing that the proclamation mm -hmm. says. You know, after 1916, that's clear. If you want independence, you want a Republic. Um, that maybe wasn't that clear before the rising. Um, but to try and then, you know, and we do spend, you know, we spend hours going over every word in the proclamation. By 1918, 1919, the idea of this republic was in people's minds. But every person probably had a different perception of what that republic would be about. I think that's a really important point, Brian, because it's clear, certainly until after even the Civil War, that there was no clearly worked out programme for uh, how the politic would be run after uh, independence was gained. So there were various ideas that might have been based on assumptions, depending on where you came from, uh, and there were temporary alliances that worked. But in the long run, uh, it was really only as there was finite organisation with the provisional government taking over that you began to see the shape of a long-term programme. I may just cut across today, just because you just raised something I wanted to bring in, which is how Labour was set up organisationally, because it's a very complex situation. John, maybe mm -hmm. if you could talk about that, because we're talking about British-based trade unions, yes. Irish trade, and then just a question. I, 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 you can come back to this as well when you when you get back to me. To what extent with these issues? I'm talking about social issues of health, etc. Et you know, to what extent were they political issues of the day? Okay, I suppose first with the trade union movement and Labour Party, uh, which it adds to its name following a decision of uh, 1912, so it becomes the Irish Trade Union Congress and Labour Party. It uh, dates back to uh, the to 1894, and at that time and in its early years, it's dominated by craft workers, skilled workers, male mostly or entirely, uh, very few, uh, apart from the linen workers, uh, women not really represented. Uh, also significant that the um, movement uh, is composed uh, predominantly of unions which have their headquarters in Britain. So it's a um, separation, a split from the uh, British Trade Union Congress, uh, but it kind of uh, is uh, um, very similar uh, to it. In, in many respects. This begins to change, I suppose, with the establishment of the ITGWU in 1909, which itself was a split from the British-based um, National Union of Dock Labourers. Jim Larkin uh, had come to Ireland a couple of years earlier as an official of, 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 of that union. So with the establishment of the, um, of the ITGWU, uh, you have, I suppose, a kind of a, a socialist republicanism a voice uh, entering the um, entering the, the the movement and becoming um, quite notable over uh, the following couple of years as the union grows 
and as Larkin and his um, uh, 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 fellow thinkers, if you like, um, begin to take over the, the Irish Trade Union uh, Congress. Brian, can uh, I, Brian, can yes. I bring, I just want to Brian in on something because I, I talked uh, about this before, which is the proliferation of, of Irish unions. And, and I'm thinking in particular about the work of the IRB. I mean, as yes. I understand it, the IRB was very much involved in promoting Irish unions. And of course, this wasn't necessarily to the, to the good of the labour movement generally, Brian. Firstly, there was, there was, there was a whole plethora of, of trade unions, um, dozens of them, even in just Dublin alone. And, and the novelty of the Irish Transport Union was that this was going to be a general union, but also an Irish union uh, and workers um, of all crafts and trades and, uh, and of none could join um, and had a very distinctive Irish identity. But you also then had, in the period of, of the War of Independence, a strong feeling on behalf of, of a lot of Irish Irelanders that British trade unions themselves um, should be driven out of Ireland, that the Irish Republican movement should use the various Irish unions um, to advance their cause. And there was a determined effort in, in the electrical trade and so on to establish um, Irish-based unions with IRB influence that would both, you know, uh, negate the influence of, of British trade unionism, which was seen as bad per se, and also then promote the aims of, of Irish republicanism in various ways, including by supporting the IRA and using the tradesmen themselves and their, their ability to get into barracks and so on to help the republican struggle. Now, there's always a lot of conflict about this, and it's always very messy, firstly, because the nature of, of craft trade unionism and so on um, is messy anyway. So you still have British-based unions whose members could be just as nationalistic. So it's members of the National Union of Railwaymen who are boycotting British Transport in Ireland, for example, their head, the headquarters of their union is in London. And that's important, you know, in, in terms of that story. But the fact that they're members of a British trade, based trade union doesn't make them any less necessarily uh, patriotic in, in, in Irish terms. And that continues right throughout the 20th century. And then you also have, you know, people getting entangled in these intra-union battles that, you know, um, might be dressed up as being about patriotism, but can be about control of certain workplaces and, and, and all the rest of it. So it is very messy. But of course, because we've been part of the United Kingdom, lots of Irish trade unions had headquarters in Britain, uh, particularly craft unions. This reminds me of my, my days in Ringsend Power Station. Many, many years ago, there was a whole plethora of trade unions. My, my favourite was the Stationary Engine Drivers Union, if I got the name. Anyway, I digress. Now, just something else, just, just on the question of, of um, sort of party politics and the Labour movement. Is there an extent that the Labour Party's real rival was actually the Irish Parliamentary Party, not Sinn Féin? Well, the Labour Party is more an aspiration, as it were, <coughs> on, at, at that point. But certainly the Irish Party... Um, well, it, it saw itself as a nationalist, as a movement uh, rather than a party per se, uh, very much opposed to um, any opposition, particularly from within the nationalist family, as it were, uh, castigating opponents as splitters and so on. But it certainly, I suppose, uh, there's a number, uh, certainly it was seen as um, almost a Labour Party by the British Labour Party, uh, yeah. Keir Hardy and so on visiting uh, United Irish League branches. And it had some claim, uh, it, it did promote in some ways um, a Labour agenda. There were a number of MPs, for example, Davis, JP Nanetti, D.D. Sheehan in North Cork and so on, who identified as Labour nationalists, analogous in way to the 
Labour liberals in, in Britain who were, uh, went on to establish the British Labour Party. And in terms of an actual achievement on the Labour side, uh, and of course they had the affiliation of the Labour's trade union, the Irish Land and Labour Association. Uh, but in terms of an achievement, um, I suppose the most notable, which has been pointed to by Emmett O'Connor and other historians, is uh, the uh, Labourers Acts, uh, which um, created thousands of, uh, of uh, labourers' cottages, uh, taking people out of hovels, essentially, uh, throughout rural Ireland in the um, uh, uh, decades before uh, the First World War. So they had, they had delivered to some extent. Well, yes, uh, but on some other, so um, I suppose, achievement in terms of the, the labourers' cottages, uh, certainly, and in, I suppose, including the labourers within their councils in the form of the uh, Irish Land and Labour Association and some uh, MPs with those type of sympathies. And other issues, women's suffrage, national insurance, the record was, was, was less uh, progressive, perhaps. And I suppose it was really, uh, of course, Connolly uh, argued against the uh, those who considered the um, the Irish Party uh, to be a Labour Party um, uh, as such, and I suppose his view would have gained um, more uh, resonance uh, certainly um, at around the time of the 1913 uh, lockout and, and, and so on, when the Irish Party or many of its MPs were kind of um, exposed as being uh, n- not so well disposed to the rising Labour movement of the ITG. And of course, the, the, the Irish Parliamentary Party had the advantage that it, it, it was never in government. You know, so it never had the responsibility of actually having to deliver. Well, it was, uh, to use the, it had a similar, um, it, 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 British governments were dependent upon it, uh, just as, say, our outgoing government here was dependent on Fianna Fáil. Uh, they had a similar relationship with liber, liberal uh, liberal governments. Brian, did um, you want to comment on that? Just, I mean, it, it was in local government, though. You know, so on Dublin Corporation, which had been nationalist since whatever the mid uh, 1800s, they were the dominant force by the early 20th century. And in Dublin, of course, had appalling tenements, the worst in the, the United Kingdom. And this is part of the background, as we know, to the story of the lockout and so on. So the, the Irish party at local level um, was far less in many ways. In Britain, it certainly was a seen as friendly to la- seen as friendly to Labour there. But in Dublin, where it was effectively in control, I think, uh, socialists would have argued that it betrayed itself as the party of the publicans and the um, a lot of the landlords and and the the shopkeepers and so on. Um, as it was in a lot Republicans of Republicans as opposed to Republicans, Brian. Sorry. Yes, Republicans. Yes. Although they were Republican publicans too, you know, but, uh, <laughs> as we'll see. So it's you know during the lockout, yeah, it's put to the test. And of course, William Martin Murphy, in some ways, is is this vision of the future because even though he's not a a Redmondite, he's a dissident home ruler. He's a Catholic nationalist leading the Dublin employers who historically were unionists. You know, he's their first Catholic nationalist leader. And in some ways, he represents one vision of Ireland of the future. And Larkin and the Transport Union represent a different one. Um, and that's part of the story of, of the pre-rising era. I think that the situation vis-a-vis the First World War meant that there was a radical change in relationships across the trade unions, the Labour Party and the IPP. And a lot of that was due to the confidence that union members have gained from suddenly there was kind of a post-war boom in economics that meant that they were having the confidence to strike for better conditions. 
uh, the IPP wouldn't have been seen as representative of ordinary people who needed to uh, be having a, a radical change. But also, of course, then there would have been the aftermath of the 1916 rising and the association of the IPP with the ruling party that had been seen to have that uh, brutal response to the rising. So I think there were a whole lot of issues happening over those two or three years before the war of independence that gave rise to an altered uh, relationship between uh, the Labour Party and the unions, but more importantly, the union members on the ground. I tell you, I wanted to move things on, and it has been mentioned already, uh, I, I want to move things on to the, the democratic programme. Maybe, uh, um, Sarah, if you come in on this, because on the face of it, it's a pretty radical document, right? But was it just window dressing? Before I jump into that, I might just jump into the last point to connect kind of what John was saying and, and Brian and Mary. I guess where you lived, because there is such an emphasis on health and welfare in the preceding 10 years, and be that in legislation or in regards to, you know, different changes, as John pointed out, living in rural areas is statistically healthier at this point. And I think some of um, what we're looking at here in regards to the conditions. And at the moment, I think it's quite interesting if we look at the question of disease, um, labor laws, all the different changes that came through, because um, obviously if you are living in a tenement in Dublin, you're so much more limited in, in many of the measures they're trying to encourage, be it improving in hygiene, sanitation, everything else. So even though TB is still the greatest killer around this time, we also have lots of changes in regards to vaccination. So I think this is the broad social changes, like Mary has said, and then questioning the impact of the First World War into the Spanish flu is is really part of this discussion. Um, on the democratic programme, I suppose in many ways it's it's a political philosophy, but to pick up on what Brian said earlier, it is a document that's primarily drafted by three members of the Labour Party with, I think, Sean T. O'Kelly uh, taking some of the edges off it. So it's probably more about whether it could be implemented later on and whether even the Parliament at that time would have been in agreement with the left-wing principles of it. And I guess it leads to that question of um, to what extent uh, many Republicans are left wing in their in their own political thinking. So it's not really I wouldn't call it window dressing. I would just be more interested in um, the even though it is unanimously supported on paper, to what extent actually members agreed with what was there? And also, could it have been more radical would be a question I would have if you're looking internationally at the time. I mean, I've, I've made this point several times. Should we always be suspicious of anything that is adopted unanimously? Here's a question. You know, that if something is, is accepted on a, on a very tight vote after a ferocious row and argument, it is much more you know, it, it's worth a lot more than something that's passed on a nod. So that's why I... I, I, yeah, I guess I, you have to question, is there legislative power at that time yeah. to put in these principles? If not, uh, it's there's far too many um, similarities, but right now, to be honest, I don't know, can I have this conversation about programmes of actually, government? Can I ask a dumb question here? What's in it? Can, can you just remind our listeners 
What's the gist of the democratic program? What does it say? It's often been pointed out that there's no firm commitments in it except one. And that's to the abolition of the workhouse system. A lot of the rest of it, it's in social democratic language, but it avoids uh, firm commitments. Uh, so, um, that was done to Fogel Penn, wasn't it? I mean, the, the workhouses were abolished just by simply abolishing the name. Indeed, okay. yes. And, but the institutions uh, continue. I don't think we want to get into that here, but no, I mean, okay. that leads us into debates like about uh, mother and baby homes and so on. And so the abolition of the workhouse system at the stroke of a pen, which was the commitment of the Democrat, the solid commitment of the democratic program, didn't um, have uh, an entirely uh, uh, a positive outcome in, in, in yeah. all respects uh, because the tr- transition wasn't wasn't uh, wasn't wasn't thought through. Sorry, I'll, uh, yeah. Brian, do you want to come in on that? Well, no, I think part of the importance of it is that it exists and that the labour movement were important enough to be asked to produce it because Sinn Féin were, were ruthlessly pragmatic and they wanted both international recognition and the socialist movement was becoming tremendously important in the post-war world. They thought if the Irish labour movement could present Ireland's case for independence to international socialism, this would be of benefit it's about, to the, about sovereignty the again. Yeah, about sovereignty, um, again. about sovereignty. And also the fact is that labour movement had been dealt very bad blows prior to the war, particularly in the lockout and so on. The transport union had been down to a few thousand members by 1916. But from 1917 onwards, Labour in general and the Irish transport union in particular are becoming a major force. And I think it's it's, it's kind of always forgotten because we, we put so much emphasis on Connolly and, and the Citizens Army and so on that a union led by far more, far less illustrious characters in some ways became a mass force. You know, the Transport Union has 120,000 members by 1919, 1920. Half of them are farm labourers. So it's reaching parts of Ireland that the, you know, that the unions were were historically not able to reach in a lot of cases are are assumed couldn't reach. So the unions are important players and the Labour Party and Trade Union Congress needs to be um, at least, you know, brought on board by the Republican movement in many ways. So the democratic program is both for international um, opinion, but also in terms of Labour being seen to have a place in the New Ireland. Yeah, I, I think there are, uh, I mean, I would agree with what's been said so far, but uh, you can't separate it from the international situation in particular. I mean, the one thing about the democratic programs, it seems that most of the members of that first sitting in the door hadn't actually had an opportunity to read it. So they were certainly rubber stamping it without examining it. But I there may well have been, in addition to the recognition of the numbers in Ireland, uh, in you know from about 1990, certainly into the early 1920s, there was a huge wave of labour activation across Europe and very much left-wing directed movements, you know, apart from the Russian Revolution, which was obvious, uh, you know, there were particularly, say, the Vienna Rasa in Italy and various other uprisings, including the war in Germany. So it's, I would say it's highly unlikely that uh, people were not conscious of that. I mean, even 1918 in Dublin, there were uh, mass meetings to celebrate the Russian Revolution, uh, both the Menshevik and the Bolshevik. Uh, So there probably was a concern among those who were less socially, socialistically inclined, shall I say, 
that labor actually had more power than it did at the time but there's but there obviously was to clear support for a movement forward and i think this is you know you come back to the use of soviets as a way of having industrial action rather than just strikes which you know must have been influenced by knowledge of what had happened in russia yeah john can i bring you in in on yes. this, because uh, the, the term Soviet, when the problem with Soviet, you know, it's like swallow, yes. you know, one swallow and you think you have a whole summer, one Soviet and, you know, there's a revolution on the way. Um, just could you explain what it means, right, uh, in general and what it meant in the Irish context? And I'd like to tease out the point that yes. Mary just raised, the difference between a strike and a Soviet. Well, I guess, first of all, what's a Soviet? The word as people will probably know, uh, is borrowed, uh, borrowing from Russia. It simply means uh, council, but it was the, um, they were used, workers' councils were used by the Bolsheviks uh, in, uh, in, in, in 1917 in their um, uh, assumption of, of power. Now, uh, the word itself, kind of much like boycott, went out from Ireland in the 1880s, sabotage was adopted from about 1910, coming out of of of, of France, um, Soviet was kind of the meaning was was vague enough, and in the Irish context, the impression is that it was used initially pejoratively, uh, certainly with regard to the um, um, the Limerick Soviet, probably the best known. Um, it was, I think, first referred to as such in the Irish Times, which was not um, uh, uh, well disposed, uh, let's say, to the to the. It's a pejorative term originally. Originally, but then, which was clearly adopted We're by some yeah. of the radicals themselves, as you can yeah. see in the slogan of the not long and brewery Soviets, we make bread, not profits. Uh, you know, Limerick, uh, uh, and that was the uh, not long creamery Soviet uh, self-style. But it's, in terms of, of what they were, I suppose they cover a variety of different phenomena from the Limerick Soviet, which involved the uh, taking over by the labour body of affairs in Limerick uh, for, for, for a couple of weeks, to more uh, flash-in-the-pan uh, episodes like uh, Limo Flaherty's um, unemployed Soviet in the, in the, in the, in the rotunda in, in, in Dublin. Uh, so um, I suppose in terms of what they actually uh, meant, it meant, um, I, I suppose in practice, um, seizing and holding for a period uh, a, a town or a premises or, or, or a mine, as the case of uh, Arigna, which I think was about the longest one in the, on the Leitrim uh, Roscommon border, which went, on, which, which went on for two months, I think, in 1921. So essentially there, and I suppose the context of them and the fact that uh, the seizures take place and that they go on for days or, or weeks or whatever, um, is also reflects the state of affairs in the country, the departure of the uh, RIC, say from a lot of uh, of, 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 of rural Ireland. Uh, so uh, people could um, take the law into their own hands or make there's, there's their own law, order, law at, at, order, at, at that particular yeah, point. There's a law but and it order doesn't seem in general, though there were some uh, people involved in the monster, rural monster Soviets, the creamery Soviets, and so on, who were. Uh, self-styled Bolsheviks. In general, they seem to have been kind of strategic in winning um, uh, short-term claims, wage increases, uh, and, 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 and the likes. And uh, as regards how extensive they were, 
Again, uh, it's difficult to measure. The figure 100 plus has been uh, mentioned, but again, uh, it's difficult to make to count uh, in terms of of of, of uh, uh, the numbers that people uh, kind of where, where people would have embraced the term as it were, rather than it being used um, in the local media, um, uh, perhaps in a pejorative sense. Just briefly, I mean, there's very vivid descriptions in the. Um... Irish Transport Union's reports from the April 1920 general strike uh, to free the hunger strikers in Mountjoy, which is a national uh, strike. In a lot of places, you know, like Rathangan, Bagnallstown, Virginia, County Cavan, Maynooth, places where, again, you wouldn't associate with, with the labour movement, there's big strikes. And invariably in these reports, you know, from Bagnallstown, they say, on the second day of the strike, we held a public meeting in the Market Square and public, publicly proclaimed the establishment of a provisional Soviet government. Um, in Tralee, the Trades Council was turned into a Workers' Council and we took full control of everything. You know, so the idea that Workers' Councils take control and that they call themselves Soviets is out there. Mm -hmm. So people do adopt this idea. Now, that strike lasts two days. It's tremendously successful and we would have had a centenary celebration had we not all been locked down, hopefully, in the last (laughs) couple of weeks. But So the term is out there and that does reflect confidence and also the international uh, atmosphere, obviously. Yeah. Okay, well, this 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 is getting to the nub of this thing now because the point is that the the, the 1920 general strike demonstrates the, the the potential power of the labour movement, right? But the point is, it's a power they're exercising on behalf of a different social force, i.e., you know, the the, the, the national movement, Sinn Fein. Like right. it, it, its big mobilisations is always for somebody else's agenda, never for its own agenda. Like, I mean, what was I'm that? not sure it's quite as simple as that. Uh, I mean, okay. there's a number of, of um, mobilizations over the period uh, which might be seen to have a purely nationalist uh, objective or a mainly nationalist objective uh, from the uh, anti conscription strike, um, which obviously served uh, a nationalist um, uh, uh, cause. But uh, obviously, uh, conscription is of concern to uh, labour as well. And anti-conscription movement in Australia, for example, was led by labour and feminists. Um, in uh, With regard to the um, Limerick Soviet, uh, likewise, um, it was um, an, um, in opposition, essentially, uh, to martial law and to the British army. But yet it was still about the right to go to your job without having to present this vexatious uh, permit on, on, on your way. Uh, and even if we take up 19, uh, to, to 1920 um, and the, the strike in relation to uh, the hunger strikers in 1920, some of the hunger strikers were uh, actual transport union organisers. Jack Headley, who was one of the um, self-styled Bolsheviks of the monster agitation uh, was was one of them, uh, I think, and there were a number of other union officials. So it's not um, a, 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 quite a, an entirely um, there's overlapping elements to it, if you like. Uh, Frank Gallagher was one of the hunger strikers, and yeah. after his release, he went back to his job as a journalist, and he wrote a piece in May 1920 about the meaning of the hunger strike. And essentially, he was saying, maybe in rather rosy terms, as a recognition of the people of Ireland recognising their common nationality, but also their common interests. 
So it's almost, you know, ignoring the class element, but at the same time, uh, he is recognizing, and this is somebody who wasn't coming from the trade union background, mm -hmm. uh, talking about the influence of the labor movement and their capacity to use those tools. I mean, I, I would think that the key thing about Soviets as opposed to strikes is that it is coming from below and that it's seizing control uh, by the people who are most affected by what's going on, where a strike will be of the same thing, but um, necessarily uh, organized by officials for the most part. But that's kind of hindsight and uh, looking backwards rather than how it might have been seen at the time. Mary, this actually brings me on to the, the, another item in, in our title here, which is the question of land seizures, right? John, just talk to us about that. I mean, uh, I'll talk here about cattle drives, land seizures. Yeah. And how does a land seizure work? In other words, if somebody, how do you, you know, it's one thing to seize land, but how do you hold on to it, right? I mean, how does that work in, on the ground? Yeah, well, I suppose uh, this is, um, uh, it's not new, but I suppose what is, um, uh, uh, we've had land seizures of one sort before, cattle drives and, and, and the like, but a contagion, as it were, swept the, the country, certainly, uh, what, about 100 years ago, these months, uh, March to June, roughly 1920, uh, uh, emanating as did the Land League and so on from the west of Ireland, from, from uh, uh, Galway and Mayo. And I suppose um, if we, uh, agriculture had a boom time uh, during the war. There's a kind of um, uh, assumption in the narrative of Irish history generally, the land question is solved um, early in the first decade or so uh, of the century. But there's still many grievances, in particular among those who feel left out by the settlement, people without land, or so-called congests who hadn't enough uh, to raise uh, their families on. Um, on. In the West, in particular, uh, there was focus on... Um, uh, on, on graziers uh, who uh, sublet land on the 11th month system. So their um, land became a particular target in, um, in, in 1920, uh, which Kevin O'Sheel, who was the Trinity-educated barrister who was kind of sent out by Dahl Aaron to sort all this out, um, he said it was, the, there was, uh, it was um, on a more uh, extensive scale than any uh, land movement uh, since the early 1880s. So that gives some, uh, and it reached across about the western half of Ireland, uh, broadly uh, speaking. Now, as with the Soviets, and it included Soviets, the Broadford Soviet <laughs> was essentially at the seizure of a, of a, of a land of, of, of a, of a, uh, in, in County Clare. Uh, that was essentially a land seizure and a division uh, among the community. Uh, but a major device essentially was uh, making um, uh, life impossible for the graziers to hold on to these uh, tracts which people needed uh, to survive. So they use uh, essentially driving the graziers cattle away at night, many miles, and just leaving them on the road, essentially, or, 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 um, uh, 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 to cause uh, ir irritation. Uh, there was kind of an interesting one I'll mention because my grandfather was uh, in the thick of it. Uh, this was uh, in... Uh, um, in, in Carndulla, on the shores of Loch Carrob in County Galway, uh, when the county sheriff of County Galway, who was a local landowner, mill, mill owner, a man called James Al Alcorn, was taken uh, to the shores of the lake and 
dunked in the lake and told he'd be going in permanently in two minutes if he didn't sign over uh, the, the, the land holding. Sign over the land. This I'm getting at here. You know, the, the legality. Yeah. Uh, but there is, um, there's a variety of devices, as I said, uh, used. But it's of great concern to the uh, to um, Sinn Féin uh, because uh, it's seen as socialist, socially divisive. It's people taking the law into their own hands. The Dáil is trying to assert its authority with Dáil courts and so on. Uh, so its uh, solution here is to establish a system more or less parallel to the Dáil courts, which were land courts. And uh, we have this account uh, from Kevin O'Shiel, as I said, of his uh, in, uh, involvement. And it's kind of... Um, uh, it, they use a system of arbitration uh, where they try... where they take account of the claims of the presumed, the usually larger uh, farmer or, 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 or landlord. And uh, sometimes, and O'Shiel gives an example from around um, Ballinrobe uh, County, Mayo, where if the, um, uh, the, the, um, the, the, the militant tenants don't take, um, uh, don't, don't, uh, don't accept the, uh, the ruling of the court, and many of them were reluctant to do so, they would have had a visit uh, in the middle of the night from, um, uh, from, uh, the, uh, from loyal uh, uh, members of the IRA. But of course, it divided the IRA as well. Uh, and in particular, there's um, an account from, um, uh, in, uh, to, to which Michael Collins paid some attention to uh, in March 1920 in Connemara, uh, where the uh, boycotted people are prominent people in the Republican movement related to um, Porico Malia and um, uh, uh, the, the, the Sinn Féin MP and so on. And what this produced is a division between uh, Sinn Féin and the IRA. So the IRA are going around uh, acting in a kind of um, uh, in, involved in the boycotting and the seizures, uh, whereas uh, Sinn Féin are are on the uh, are, are kind of defending the rights of the owners, the shopkeepers, and 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 and, and so on. Just before we, I, I want to I want to develop this discussion on the Dáil course, but just before I do, Brian, Brian, I want to come back to you because on the question of criminality, and I, I choose my words carefully here because a lot of what John has just been describing here could be described or could you know fade into and be be regarded as criminality, and I'm assuming that with a, a guerrilla war going on, law and order is breaking down in many parts of the country. Yeah, there is, there is a, a breakdown in, in, in law and order, um, particularly in late 1919 and early 1920. And what the um, problem for the Republicans and for the Dáil is this. I mean, they're leading a revolution against the British government and the British Empire. And the British are continually denouncing them as terrorists and as a murder gang. And also then there's all the prejudice about the fact that the Irish just wouldn't be able to govern themselves. So the doll has to, to a great extent, um, appear very respectable. And this plays out into how the doll courts operate as well. Um, they don't want a breakdown of law and order. They don't want criminality. And there is all kinds of ordinary crime, so to speak, going on at the time as well. There definitely is a crime wave, certainly in comparison to, to what had existed beforehand when they've been relatively little um, ordinary crime, um, to, to some extent anyway. So the Dáil establishes a Republican police, which is largely in the early stages just the IRA, but it becomes a slightly separate force later on, who 
in lots of cases, recover stolen money and give it back to the people it's been stolen from. Famously, in Mill Street in Cork, a bank is robbed, £20,000 taken, which is big, big money in uh, 1919. And the IRA get the money back and give it back to the bank. And they do that a lot. Um, they, uh, you know, uh, deport a lot of people because they don't have prisons. What they do very little is kill people. The IRA very rarely kills criminals in that era. Um, but they do arrest lots of people, try and clamp down on gangs in Dublin and elsewhere, and are very keen to be appreciated by respectable community. So you've got a whole, you know, lots of cases of unionist landowners who praise the IRA for clamping down on crime or who praise the Dáil courts for being fair. And the Republicans play this up an enormous amount because, again, they're being assailed as 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 people who are anarchists. So they're keen to say, no, look, we're we're absolutely, we've got Lord Mount Eagle saying the Sinn Féin courts are, are better than the, the normal courts. We've got unionist employers in Kenny saying, you know, we had all sorts of trouble, but the Republican police solved it and the RIC weren't able to do it. So there's this constant, you know, battle going on in terms of what's happening on the ground between revolutionary instincts and also those who are saying, well, you know, if we want to get international recognition, particularly from the United States and so on, we want to win over opinion in Britain. We can't let things go to hell. We can't let the appearance of, of anarchy, at least, um, uh, run rampant. Isn't that, in terms of what the objective here is, which is uh, sovereignty and independence, isn't that good politics? Can the case be made that the Dáil courts were amazingly successful for what their function was? And their function wasn't to, to, to foment social revolution. Their function was to keep the lid on things. I, I think initially there was an element of both. Certainly, I mean, when the first Dole sat and then they, the uh, Dole courts evolved out of the arbitration courts for land seizures and other, uh, you know, land-related um, issues, I'd say mainly the intention was to assume the appearance of a legitimate state. So you had the infrastructure of the state would obviously include a court system. And over 1919 and 20, uh, they took you to go over in a sense that the assizes couldn't, where most criminal cases would be narrowed, couldn't really take place because most of the IR or I see had been uh, either boycotted out of the local areas or were simply intimidated. But either way, uh, the forces of normal peacekeeping and criminality suppression weren't being effective. But yes, of course, too, there was that element of being seen to be highly successful and being respected for what they were. But they weren't being allowed to do this by the British authorities. I mean, they were subject to uh, raids consistently. I mean, it wasn't until after the truce that they were able to operate openly. And that's when I think in that period of the six months or so until the treaty is signed, you really see them come into their own. But, um, I mean, there's the famous scene in The Wind That Checks the Barley. I've got to mention that. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, unfortunately, much as I love <laughs> the way it's portrayed, it really wouldn't have been very no. accurate reflection of what would have happened in those courts. Um, I mean, there was a, a, an infamous incident, from my point of view, from uh, Austin Stack, the Minister for Home Affairs, who had been put in charge of the Dole Courts as opposed to previous arbitration courts which came under agriculture uh, and um, the thing about uh, Austin Stack was 
that incident that's reproduced in the film with the money lender being uh, given back to being told the woman, the poor woman has to pay her debt because they need him. Uh, that actually happened in Dublin, but uh, part of it wasn't so much because they needed his money, but because it was the legal situation. They were going by the laws of the laws that existed at the time that they declared themselves a republic, which of course was the British legal system. And as Sarah Ann said in another context, uh, at that stage, they really weren't in a position to pass laws. And although they had departments for various things, they were clandestine for the most part until the truce happened. And that's when you start to see the shape of the state. And of course, all went totally, unfortunately, pear-shaped in the following year with uh, the breakdown. Isn't it interesting that for all their conservativeness, that all courts are talking about here, one of the first things the free state government was, was to abolish them. Well, I mean, they were mistakenly... Uh, backhanded compliment in a sense? It is, but at the same time, it's also black propaganda over the years. I and mean, I think Kevin O'Higgins in particular would have led the charge on that. When you're looking at the various dual debates about uh, not just the dual courts, but you know various issues in relation to the justice system while he was uh, there, it's very much making the anti-treaty people out to be more uh, politically left than they actually were. So they were tiring the dog courts with that kind of label as a way of distancing themselves from uh, the anti-treaty forces, who, as we know, you know, really were a very mixed bag and didn't have you know, it wasn't a socialist enterprise, that uh, their objection was totally on uh, the selling out of the idea of the Republic as they had been fighting for. When I told the question out here is why does that misunderstanding persist? And I'm talking about the misunderstanding that, that the anti-treaty side are inherently more radical socially. Brian, do you want to comment on that? Is that a fair, is that a fair observation to make, by the way? Um, well, I think, there, again, there's, there's this whole process taking place during the War of Independence and the Civil War where both in the West on the land and in the East among farm labourers, which are a different, is a different phenomenon, and in other parts of the country, you have this tremendous militancy. And some of it is linked to the national struggle and some of it, some of it isn't. And that kind of continues on into the Civil War period and does become intertwined at a local level very often with the free state government seeing every strike as a harbinger of Bolshevism and therefore likely to aid the anti-treatyites. And people like Liam Lynch, the anti-treaty IRA chief of staff, who initially isn't that interested in these things, does ultimately conclude that the more trouble there is for the free state, whether it's strikes or land agitation and so on, it might help bring them down. And Liam Mellows, I think, also comes relatively late to this idea of embracing social radicalism. In the longer run, why? Well, one, I think people need something to believe in. And I think we, we, we downplay how important sovereignty was because there's a lot of disappointment with what sovereignty bought. So we forget that in 1920, the idea of Ireland actually winning a degree of sovereignty from the British Empire seems still pretty crazy. We're disappointed for very good reasons by what comes after. And I think therefore people on the left in particular look at the civil war and see this, is this great missing opportunity for revolution. And I think that there is a lot going on in terms of class, a lot of radicalism there, but it's not easily put into boxes of 
the anti-treatyites are the, the left-wingers and the, the pro-treatyites are, of course, the, 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 the capitalists, even though most of them are. And then you also have Labour, because where is Labour in all of this? And it, it, there's an irony that the democratic programme is held up as this great document, the missing tread, when it was written by Thomas Johnson, you know, who by 1923 is despised by Republicans for supposedly propping up the, the free state. And I think maybe some of this is down to the, the omnipresence of, of Pat O'Donnell's work, you know, who really is taken at face value in terms of what he writes about the Civil War, when again, you've got to like, you know, say, well, Labour are a bit of a different thing. And, you know, you talk about general strikes. Well, in 1922, there's a very successful general strike um, in the spring of 1922, against the drift to civil war. Now, implicitly, it's in favour of the treaty because it's saying, right, this is, we're going to have to deal with this. And Republicans, of course, write this off as treachery, but it's a huge general strike and you just don't get, as for God's sake, we had 10 years of austerity when everybody was talking about general strikes. We never had one. They're not easy to organise. This is a big event. It wouldn't have happened unless thousands of workers were a little bit outside all of this debate. Like Labour in 1922, get a huge vote in that treaty election. And Labour are not really part of their argument. So there may be lots of working class people who, you know, are thinking somewhat outside the box in terms of the treaty split and so on. Now, that's not really answering your question, but I think that it's it's part of this story that's not easily ex- explicable in terms of, of the labels, maybe. And we just want to come in on that? I mean... I think, like, it just, and again, not answering your question, but I think it's also about the historiography, and I think some of the more recent historiography, and especially kind of the the micro studies, or like I'm thinking of like Fanula Walsh's work on women in the First World War. She shows that while the effects of the First World War are actually not positive for Irish women, so later on into the twenties, as Mary alluded to, there isn't that bounce. It had a huge effect on them at the time. So it's actually about like people's experiences at that time. Sometimes we're looking at what came afterwards and we're, we're reflecting back. But I think that's kind of quite important. And I think as well with the recent studies on the Spanish flu, we're seeing that as well. So I think it's just about trying to piece, you know, the personal experiences during that time. Like Brian says, another question is how many working class people are actually involved in the Republican movement, but may have the you know, maybe that way minded, they just may not have the actual, um, be able to afford to be involved in that kind of activism. So I think there are some of the issues that would be coming through for me. Now, just, just, to, just, just to wrap things up, we get towards the end here. My question about the, the, the assumed social radicalism of the anti-treaty side, just to try, turn that on its head, because I think we can say that the pro-treaty side did represent conservative forces at the time. I, I presume we're, we're, we're agreed on that. And they are, the, they are the forces who prevailed ultimately. So we're, if you're looking at Ireland after the Civil War, 1923, it's a very conservative place. But then again, so is everywhere in Europe. It seems to me that for emphasis quite often on how to, everything went pear-shaped, you know, you know, went conservative, et cetera, et cetera. But people don't take into account, well, this is what was happening everywhere. You know, so sh- should we stop beating ourselves up about this? I think the point that Sarah-Anne has just made is extremely important, that it is about how people felt at the time. So I wouldn't say that all pro-treaty people were necessarily socially conservative, particularly for those who were kind of caught up in uh, the viciousness of so many years of war and hardship. 
I suspect a lot of people would have voted for the treaty simply to have a period of peace and a chance to catch their breath, you know, for a while. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily a vote for or against. Um, it would simply be, you know, can we just stop for a while? Yeah, that's, and, uh, that's the argument used by the priest giving the sermon in the wind that shakes the barley. Brian, you want to come in there? Yeah, just ironically, I mean, during the treaty debates itself, the democratic programmes only mentioned once as far as I can see. And it's mentioned by Joe McGrath, a pro-treatyite, who says under this treaty, we'll be able to put into effect the measures in the democratic programme. Now, there's a great irony in that, because there are some people, of course, McGrath had been involved with the transport union as well. Now, during the Civil War, he's centrally involved in a very brutal death squad in Dublin. You know, But he, no, nobody on the anti-treaty side during the treaty debate says we need the democratic programme. Later on, Mellows does say it when he's in jail. So I think there is, you know, this great, you know, confusion and complexity, but also there's the, again, the the lived experience of so many people. And this is where class is important, I suppose, because ordinary working class people to a great extent didn't have voices or where we've got to really delve in to try and discover to how they experienced these events. And, you know, the, to, a great extent, the leadership of the Republican movement were very literate people and there's all kinds of records about them. But the so-called rabble of the towns and so on, you know, the people who lived in the lanes, uh, the people who are dismissed in the literature, the tramps and the tinkers and so on, you know, how do we discover what they thought, how they experienced the revolution? And people like Sarah Ann and so on are, are, are trying to do that. But it's it will be part of the story, I suppose, as, as we go on. But again, we... We tend to think, well, Labour is one block, Republicans are another block, so on, these things. But they're actually much more, you know, fluid than that, I think, at the time. And it, I think it, I've, you know, I've, I've used this phrase a lot. It's Ernie O'Malley's phrase about class in Ireland being like the layers of an onion. I mean, you know, it isn't just workers, bosses or the middle class. There's so many gradations in rural Ireland and so on, farmers, labourers shopkeepers and, and so on and all these things. And, and they all really mattered. People were very aware of class. John, do you want to come back on that the, the international situation, like the post-1923? Well, I suppose uh, there's a number of things which change um, in Ireland and internationally. Um, there's the uh, post-war economic downturn, uh, which is one thing, um, which is an international uh, phenomenon, but it affects, um, it affects labour and the confidence of labour and labour's capacity uh, to act uh, independently. Uh, so uh, I suppose the defeat of the transport union in uh, rural Ireland, in um, in Leinster and... Um, and what are you referring to there, John? Just, just give us a detail on that. What defeat Sorry. are we talking about? Uh, well, we're, we're talking about uh, farm labour's d- d- defeats and the withdrawal of... a. Uh, big strikes in Kildare, Waterford and so on, um, where um, the recently, the group which joined the, the, the transport union the, that Brian referred to uh, earlier as half, essentially, of the transport union at its, at its uh, peak, uh, they essentially uh, are defeated in uh, conflict with, with farmers in, in a number of disputes. And um, so... Um, uh, uh, essentially, the ITGWU abandons rural Ireland in consequence, and labour is reduced pretty much uh, to not much more in a couple of years um, 
than it had been in the aftermath of the 1913 uh, lockout with uh, feuding and so on as Jim Larkin comes back uh, from uh, from the United States as a as a as a uh, out of jail and so on and as a a leader of the com- international communist movement at that stage, uh, contributing to uh, uh, factionalism uh, that occurred. But it was a, a reflection, I suppose, of the broader uh, situation uh, of a shrinking movement. And um, uh, uh, you have conflict, uh, ideological, personal, and also um, between Irish and, and British trade unions in that in that in that in that in that in that period. Brian, is, is there also a very, a very bitter? Sorry, John. Is there, is there a very bitter uh, postal strike? I think nineteen twenty-three. Is that correct? Indeed, and yeah, there's a dock strike in twenty-two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these, these are all these are all defeats for the labour movement. Mm-hmm. These are defeats. Several of them. In general, uh, I suppose what you had the reason for the growth in the labour movement was um, arose from wartime, um, high demand for labour, um, and high inflation, and so on. Uh, in the um, so everybody uh, needed to get a wage increase, and uh, unions had the bargaining power. Labour in general had the bargaining uh, power uh, through in in a context of full employment and so on. Um, this changed uh, in the in the um, in the in, in, in the aftermath of the war, and the change, I suppose, the loss of labour's power on the ground in Ireland was delayed somewhat by the general uh, commotion in the countryside and the, uh, the, 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 the loss of, uh, of, of the authority of the, of, the, of the old state, as it were. But it right, certainly came at, that, at, the, at this period uh, towards the end of the War of Independence and into the Civil War period. Yeah. Brian, I want to come to you for a, a final comment on this, which you, you've made several times before, because quite often in discussions like this, the assumption is that what happens by, by 1923-24 represents a, a great betrayal, you know, of the Irish Revolution. You, you don't go along with that view, because in many ways, people got what they'd been fighting for, to some extent. Yeah, I suppose, again, it, it's not necessarily what, what I would have wanted, or what I think I might have wanted had I been around. But we do t- tend to take for granted that Irish independence was inevitable, and that the British were always going to concede, even what they did concede. And that's by no means, you know, you, you cannot take that for granted in, in 1918, that the independence movement really is a huge, tremendous effort in which the labour movement plays a big part, which has often been unrecognised or distorted. And again, unfortunately, we're just not, at the moment, we can't talk about the significance of the, the April 1920 general strike, you know, uh, in, in a public way, unfortunately. And you have the boycott of military transport and so on, and, and Irish Labour is an important part of, of that struggle. But the, I mean, I think what held the coalition together was this idea of sovereignty. It was by no, by no means guaranteed they would get any of that. And to do that, they really had to take on the might of the British Empire. And that shouldn't be forgotten in terms of, of the disappointment of how it works out. And also then we shouldn't assume that all of these people were tremendously disappointed. I mean, some were. But, you know, an enormous part of the revolutionary movement ended up in either Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil. Um, you know, they, we, we can trace their careers because we can, you know, um, track where, where people went. And both those parties were, the, you know, the pillars of, of the state. 
once the civil war was was over and, and um, a decade later at least and and therefore i think the there may have been the potential for something else but it's not quite clear that the treaty and so on is the end of the 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 revolution in that sense i think you've got to 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 really try and delve into these other questions about class and about what the way that the Republican movement tried to present itself in terms of its 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 worldview to see really whether there was that that impulse and whether it ever ever really was a a potential outcome. Anybody else want to come in before I wrap up? If not, I just, just want to just say briefly. Yeah. Um, no, I, yeah. I'm kind of thinking, you know, I don't often find myself apologising or in any way for coming to nail or any of the forces at that stage, but I think in some ways we were lucky um, that while they there was disappointment, there were maybe expectations, there were expectations not met. But when you look what happened in other parts of Europe with the yes. uh, arise of fascism, yeah. it could have been so much worse. Yeah, and can I just put a final, put in a final good word for sovereignty because we're seeing it demonstrated at the moment in relation to the COVID nineteen thing, the difference in debt rates and contamination rates between this island and the neighbouring island, right? So I'll, I'll leave that uh, positive thought with, with you, listeners. Um, listen, I would just like to thank everyone for uh, this. You know, as I say, we're on the frontiers of technology here, right? Our first ever uh, Zoom head school. So uh, I'd like to thank our panel here: uh, Brian Hanley, uh, Sarah Ann Buckley, Mary Muldowney and John Cunningham and uh, we hope you'll tune in again uh, listeners uh, there's, there's a great podcast actually I did with Brian in relation to the, the general election uh, we, we did weeks ago and we still don't, don't have a government so it's still it's still current it's still hot uh, if you go onto our website you, you'll get it there so do tune in for the next head school which will be marking the bicentenary of the, the death of Henry Grattan and that was on that that'll be the 6th of June uh, just coming 6th of June so keep uh, keep an eye out for that So thank you all very much for tuning in and I hope to talk to you again. Thank you.